So rewind for a minute on Saturday afternoon, you know, late morning, early afternoon, I'm having a conversation with my mom on the phone. And by Monday morning, she's completely sedated, lungs are filled with fluid, and she has no ability to breathe on her own. Thanks for finding the What It Happened Was podcast. I'm Amelia Robinson from Dayton.com. The voice you just heard belongs to Sarah White, a 31-year-old who lives in Miami Township right here in the Dayton area. A few weeks ago, Sarah and her three sisters stood by dressed in full medical protection as Angelo Faith White, their devoted mom, drew her final breath in Springville Regional Medical Center. And when I say Angela was a devoted mom, I'm not kidding. She homeschooled the apples of her eye on eight acres of land in Cable in Champaign County. Angela, who attended any event her kids were involved in, was just 56 years old. She is one of nearly 500 people who have died of COVID-19 in Ohio. As Sarah explains, Angela's death was far from easy and nothing like the flu. Sarah told me how her mom's once healthy body was assaulted by the virus that is causing havoc around the globe and right here in our community. The What It Happened Was podcast is a project of Dayton.com brought to you by the Dayton Daily News. Like and subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and wherever else you find shows you love. Now here is my chat with Sarah White. It kind of sounds like you almost had like a little house in the prairie childhood out in the country. Yeah, you're not wrong for sure. I mean, you know, you have to really plan your times when you're going to go to the grocery because it's a little bit of a hike. But, you know, it was fun too. We had eight acres of land. We had four wheelers. We had a pool. You know, we had a hill that we sled down in the wintertime. It was, it was definitely a different upbringing than what some of my friends have that have lived more in the suburban areas. And I look back it was frustrating sometimes because it did take a while to get everywhere but when I look back now I'm so grateful for it because there's so many memories and I do believe that that helped make my family the strong tight-knit family that we are. It's almost kind of like what people are going to now in a certain extent where they're all closer in on the family and so not so much on other people because of COVID-19. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Do you know how your mom got it? You know, it it would only be speculation at best. Whenever my youngest sister was in high school, my mom started working at a job from home called PRM, Professional Review Network. She primarily does medical billing and coding for uh, some nursing homes. So for most of her position, she works from home. And then once a month, she has to visit a couple of nursing homes to to help them with some of that on-site. She had visited some nursing homes earlier in the month in March. They weren't nursing homes that had the massive outbreaks that some of them had. So it's hard to know if she contracted it from there. The only person that she lived with at this point in life since they were empty nesters with my dad. He was doing a lot of the running errands because he was working and he retired last year. So it's hard to know if he was a carrier, having just been going out into our normal society and brought it home to her. It's really ironic, and she definitely is someone that changed some of the statistics that we have been hearing. And a big reason why I've offered myself to anybody who wants to kind of talk through how bad is this virus and should we really be taking all of the necessary precautions because 
My mom just did not fit that statistical mold that would, was being discussed. She barely ever left the house. She was kind of a homebody unless it had something to do with her kids or her husband. She just really didn't leave the house very often. And she's 56 years old. While the statistics for the average age have certainly been altered now that things happened when, when the virus was first brought to us. You know, everybody was saying the the elderly and the immunocompromised were the ones at risk, but my mom doesn't have any underlying health conditions. She was a very healthy person and then certainly not of age for what they had originally described. It's really hard to know, in all honesty, how she, how she contracted it, but it would have had to have been either from a nursing home or from just my dad maybe bringing home germs that he didn't know he had. And I bet he's, like, broken up about the possibility of that being the case. He mentioned that, but we've all very quickly altered that perspective because she received this diagnosis pretty early on, far before the peak and far before we really had much of any education on the virus at all. So if it would have been a situation where, like right now, where somebody wasn't taking the social distancing seriously and someone contracted it, we'd be having a different conversation. Like certainly someone probably would feel pretty guilty about that. But for when my mom contracted it, it was just so early on that there was just, we weren't even in a quarantine when my mom first contracted it. We weren't even having these strict rules. So it's just really hard to know. How did she know that she had She started experiencing kind of flu-like symptoms. So a lot what they've told us are kind of the early onset signs. She had a very high fever. She couldn't break the fever permanently. She would go through the spells of the fever breaking, and so she was in a lot of pain just from her body shaking uncontrollably through the fever breaking and then it coming back. She had a cough, but that wasn't necessarily too new because she always kind of had a cough just in general. But she was having those symptoms. She didn't have an appetite whatsoever. Eventually, she called her doctor to say, you know, she followed the protocol that they say don't just come in, but call ahead of time. And she described her symptoms, and they said, yeah, you need to go to the ER because she was short of breath as well. So she went to the ER. Her O2 level tested at a 96, which is not compromised. They sent her home and said that she wasn't in a situation where she needed to be hospitalized or tested. And then the next morning, her doctor's office called her just to check up on her to see if she was doing okay. And she says, well, now I'm nauseous. You know, now, before I wasn't able to eat just because I didn't have an appetite, but now I'm actually physically nauseous. They sent her to the University of Dayton testing site to get tested for COVID. And then that very next day, it was a Saturday, and I talked to her, and she said, yeah, my fever was up to 102.9 this morning. I was able to break it or at least reduce it. And then that night, her fever spiked back up again. And so my dad was like, are you just ready to go to the hospital? And she said, yes. They called the hospital again, following the protocol. You know, they called the hospital to say, hey, you know, I have someone that has been tested for COVID. We do not have the results back yet, but all of the symptoms are turning towards that direction and we need medical attention because she just could not catch her breath. And I talked to her on the phone that day and it was the last conversation I had with her, not knowing it would be the last one, but she was so out of breath and she was literally laying on the couch and she could barely gasp for air. And so I said, mom, I don't even want to take your oxygen to talk to you right now. So we talked for just a short period of time, but the hospital, they didn't want to take my mom in. They actually yelled at my dad for coming into the hospital. And he said, well, I need you guys to come help me get my wife into the hospital. She's so sick. And they, they were 
telling my dad, no, you have to take her home. So my dad had to be forceful and say, we are not leaving. I don't know who I have to talk to, but we're not leaving. Why did they not want to take her Is it just because she was so young? I, I would be making speculations if I said what it was. We've had multiple people that have had it, that none of which we've been in contact with, but just people in our network of people that have contracted the virus. Every single hospital, if they don't fit the mold of they're elderly, they're immunocompromised, things of that nature, they haven't been wanting to bring them into the hospital or admit them. The problem is, is that this virus, you only seem to really avoid the really harsh circumstances of what it can do, which is what obviously my mom experienced. If you catch it early, my uncle was sitting on the couch out of breath, you know, not exerting any energy, but he was out of breath and they called the ambulance. The ambulance came and got him, brought him to a satellite office of the Cleveland Clinic because they live in Cleveland and he's going to be okay because they were able to get him on the proper medications that have shown improvement and breathing treatment and fluids to hydrate. And within a couple of days, he was sent home to recover at home. So oh, it's not okay. to say that he doesn't have a road to recovery, but you know, he's going to be okay. Do you have an uncle too who has it? Yeah, I do. And then my husband's wife, her brother has it too. And here's the crazy thing. He's 23 years old and he's in great shape and he doesn't have any underlying health conditions. It's a new understanding. My uncle, the same thing. My uncle is in his 40s. He does not have underlying health conditions. It's just, unfortunately, no one is truly safe from it. So that's why, you know, it's up to all of us to take the necessary precautions. But when my mom was admitted, they were going to start her on medications and breathing treatment. During her second night there, so by that point, she had been there for about a day and a half. Overnight, her lungs filled with fluid, mm. and then now she had contracted pneumonia, which she hadn't had previously. And then they had to transfer her to a bigger hospital that could give her the treatment and the you know, faculty that she needed to be able to, to survive. So she was hospitalized for a total of two and a half weeks. Oh, my God. I didn't realize. Wow. Yeah. Where did she go initially? Initially, she was at Urbana Hospital. They just have a small hospital in that town. And then she was transferred from there to Springfield Regional. Wow. That is unbelievable. When did she first go in? She would have originally been admitted to Urbana on Saturday, March 21st, and then she was transferred to Springfield on Monday the 23rd. So she just went down quick then? She did. When she was transferred to Springfield, they actually had someone come to Urbana and intubate and sedate her because her oxygen had dropped so low at that point that they actually couldn't transfer her without having her have other people breathing for her. For example, when she was being brought from the ambulance in Springfield, from the ambulance to the hospital, she actually had about three nurses on her gurney bagging her, pumping air into her body just to keep her alive until they got her into the hospital room just because her oxygen was so low and she wasn't able to breathe on her own at all at that point. So rewind for a minute. On Saturday afternoon, you know, late morning, early afternoon, I'm having a conversation with my mom on the phone. And by Monday morning, she's completely sedated, lungs are filled with fluid, and she has no ability to breathe on her own. So when she got to Springfield, and part of the reason why she had to go to Springfield was she could not live when she was on her back. 
her O2 levels would drop so low that she was not able to <clears throat> to fight through it, and even even with oxygen being pumped into her body. So they actually had to have her on what's called a roto-prone bed. It's a pretty scary bed. If you look it up and you think about your loved one in that, it's pretty scary. It saves lives because it allows for the, the bed to tilt. It allows for that fluid in the lungs to not settle because if it settles, it will collapse your lung. And then now you have another battle that you're fighting. But she also couldn't sustain being on her back for very long at all. And in some cases, not at all. So that bed would allow her to be on her stomach or on partially on her side to be able to get the lung saturation that her body needed. It's really awesome when hospitals have the capabilities and the equipment to offer those things. I'm just like blown away that it happened so quickly and that to somebody who, like you said, wasn't on their radar as somebody who was at high risk. You're exactly right. And, you know, something that the media doesn't tell you, and maybe part of it's because they don't want to scare people, but the reality of it is, is it was hard for any of us to know just how impactful this virus was because, you know, you have one side of the media telling you it's nothing worse than the flu, and then you have the other side telling people to freak out, basically stop all living processes that we have. But while the flu takes a lot from us, and we need to definitely treat the flu with the proper precautions necessary and never take it too lightly because there is a high death rate with the flu as well, but this virus is just not compared to the flu, and I, I don't see, if people understand what this virus does, it's not comparable whatsoever. So yes, the initial onset symptoms are that it attacks your your lungs and your ability to breathe on your own, but it takes all other organs and faculties as for, for ransom, essentially. So okay. it starts there. That rotobed is keeping her alive when it comes to her lungs, but then we had to take her off of the blood thinners because there's a high clotting factor in COVID patients with your blood. And they had to take her off of the blood thinners because she was developing internal bleeding in her lungs. So when they took her off of the blood thinners, her extremities were having clotting. She was at the point where she was going to be losing toes, fingers, and that was the start of it. She was probably, if, if this would have gone on, there's a chance she was going to lose you no know, more of her extremities than that. Wow. Um, her kidneys and her liver were in failure, so they had to administer dialysis to be able to clean her blood and try to get, because, you know, they're, they're pumping all of these fluids into her body. You know, they're having to feed her through a tube. They're having to hydrate her through a tube. They're having to give her electrolytes because her electrolytes were so low from malnourishment. But then the problem is, is that when your body's not functioning on its own, you're not secreting any of those fluids. And so then when you don't secrete them, your acid level goes up. Basically, she was going into acidosis. And oh so, which is what's causing her kidneys and her liver to fail. She also had a couple of times where her oxygen and her blood pressure levels went so low that she was almost on a crash cart. And so, you know, that can have effects on your organs as well. And basically every time that that happens, the doctors described it kind of leaves almost like a scar on your organs because when you go that low, you know, your body, everything's affected. What eventually ended up being one of the biggest demises of her condition is that, and, and we don't know, we, we're only, and the doctors don't know, and that's, that's the scary part too, is that nobody with 100% certainty knows what's happening or why it's happening because this is a new virus to all of our healthcare professionals here. But because of the clotting factor and because of this bed that she had to be on to keep her lungs from dying, seemed to play a role in the fact that she actually suffered a very severe stroke. 
And and they didn't know she was suffering a stroke because she was sedated and she was unable to come out of sedation for a while. Her oxygen level was going up, so we got very hopeful. And we were actually working to take her off of sedation and to take her off of the ventilator. Every time that they tried to take her off sedation, she would get these really quick, shallow breaths. They didn't know why. So then they would re-administer sedation to try to you know, bring her out of that uncomfortable state. So eventually, once she was able to come out of the roto bed, they were able to administer a CT scan of her head because we were all concerned about potential brain damage or anything else just from the condition she had been in for so long. Um, when they did the CT scan, they were able to see that she had suffered a severe stroke. Oh, wow. And that was kind of, you know, towards the end of her stay there because they explained that the stroke was so severe that the neurologist team told her she will never speak again. She will never eat on her own again. We don't feel that she will ever be able to comprehend the words that people are saying again. And they said that the likelihood of her ever being able to breathe again on her own was one to none. <sighs> the consensus to all of it is just that this virus is a monster. That's the way that I describe it because it, it starts with one aspect of your body, typically your lungs, and then it just literally takes all prisoners and your prisoners are your organs and your blood and your faculty, your extremities. It just, it doesn't stop. And so while the doctors are trying to treat one part of your body, meaning, you know, your lungs, it's then killing your brain and they don't know it. It's a horrible disease. And then, you know, it's a factor of one more layer to that. We're in a crisis with this COVID and we're not allowed to see her. They allowed us to come in one, on a Monday when she had taken a pretty swift decline. They allowed us to come in on a Monday to meet with the doctor team. And then they allowed us to gown up like we were surgeons and go into my mom's room to basically pray with her and beg her to keep fighting and tell her that we're here for her. The only other time that we got to see her was one time through FaceTime. And then when they had us come in to make the decision to take her off, of life support because they said she will be on life support and in a vegetative state for the rest of her life. And so we had to make the decision that she told us that she never wants to be in that situation. So we had to abide by her wishes and, and make the decision to, to let her go. They did allow for my sisters and I to be in the room again, all gowned up and, and safe about it. But they allowed us to be in the room with palliative care as they turned off her machine. So her daughters were all with her whenever she whenever she passed. Was your dad allowed to go see her or was he not even allowed to go see her? He was not able to go the first time because he was in self-isolation since he had been subjected yeah. to mom. So he had to self-isolate for two weeks. But he was there at the hospital when we met with the team to discuss whether, you know, we were able to continue keeping her on life support and, and waiting for some positive reactions to it or if they were going to tell us that that wasn't the case. Being her power of attorney, being the leader of our family and certainly the person to make that decision, he was there with the doctors. But, you know, my dad just explained that he just, this coming Sunday is their 34th wedding anniversary. And he just said that he just couldn't fathom watching his wife take her last breath and watching her heart rate become zero. He just couldn't do it. My sisters and I said, 
while it's going to be tough and it's something that, you know, mentally we're going to have to work through kind of what that does to a person to watch that happen. We just had no ability to allow our mom to pass and to be alone during that or to be with strangers. So we just kind of all as a family decided that we were going to allow everybody to make the decision that they could live with long term. So if the image needed to be that of her in a healthy and bountiful state, needed to be your last image or if you needed to be there when she passed, whichever way. And we just all agreed that none of us would judge the other one for their decision. So I'm I'm actually glad my dad didn't because I'm glad that he's able to still envision her in her full health and her full personality and everything. Because whenever they sedated my mom that Monday morning, she never came out of sedation. She was never awake after that. She didn't theoretically know we were there, you know. That's another really tragic part about it. Like people can't be with their loved ones doing this mm-hmm. at time where you want to make sure that the doctors and nurses are doing right by them you can't be there mm-hmm. to ensure that so I couldn't imagine the pain that must have been for your family just to know that your mom was so caring and would have been there for you you know, oh, yeah. you know no matter what but yeah. taking a quick break to remind you that you are listening to the what had happened was podcast and I'm Amelia Robinson from Dayton.com. This podcast is brought to you by the Dayton Daily News. As our community and nation respond to the coronavirus threat, the Dayton Daily News is here, providing up-to-the-minute local coverage on our website and app and going in-depth so you know what's really going on. Our news team is working around the clock to provide information you can trust to keep your family safe and connected. As a community, we may be hunkered down in our homes, but we are still Dayton strong. We have survived so much together, and we'll get through this crisis, too. The Dayton Daily News, your trusted source for local news. What was she like as a mom? Oh, man. I don't even know where to start. It's it's crazy. I'll, I'll try to paint a picture for you. She decided when she got pregnant with my oldest sister that she was going to stay home. She really had a desire to be a stay-at-home mom and just be there for every aspect of all of our lives. Mm-hmm. And then she decided that she wanted to homeschool. She actually homeschooled all four of us girls. With all of that's happening right now with parents trying to juggle home life and work life and then also homeschooling their children, I've never been able to fathom, but now more than ever, I have a hard time fathoming how somebody was able to homeschool four kids all at the same time. (laughs) Um, But I hope that that kind of paints a small picture of kind of her dedication to her children. She had a home-cooked meal every single night for all of us, and it was very important that We didn't watch in front of the TV and lose that family time. We all sat down for a family dinner every single night. And she's just the most maternal person I can describe. It doesn't matter what time of the day or the night or if she's out of the country visiting her family or whatever. She's just always available for anybody at any time, especially when it came to her kids. Everybody's sentiments throughout this process that every single person has echoed is that whenever somebody would ask her about her kids or if she would have the opportunity to bring up something about her kids, they just said that her whole demeanor just changed and that she just got this grin on her face and that she just livened up in just a crazy way. She just loved her kids so much, and it just it would shine through to anybody that she was talking to. What did she do before she became a stay-at-home mom? She actually worked for Volvo, <laughs> so she worked in their business office. She actually is a Canadian citizen. She has her green card to be here in the United States, but she grew up in the Saskatchewan area in Canada. 
And then her father had the opportunity to come here to the United States for a pastoral position. She ended up here towards the, the later years of her teenage years. She's one of six, so some of her younger siblings were still very much so received their education here in the United States, and she received both a Canadian and American education. They moved here, then she ended up eventually in her very early 20s meeting my dad, and then that's why she stayed here. But my grandparents actually eventually moved back to Canada, which is what my reference was when she was visiting her family internationally. They, she still would go visit them a lot in Canada. What's your grandparents' names? Peter Clausen and Anne Clausen. So my grandma, Anne Clausen, actually passed away about five years ago. Oh. Again, back to her nature of being a caretaker, my grandma was suffering from pancreatic cancer and whenever it got towards the end of her battle my mom actually went up there and spent almost two months taking care of my grandma oh so she was like this even when she was a young kid and she probably had to help raise some of her siblings you make a very valid assumption in fact my two aunts that are the two youngest in that that string of siblings they've actually mentioned that multiple times that you know mom is their friend mom is their sister but that you know she was also another form of a parent to them because she absolutely, you know, being six kids, there were a lot of different things going on and my grandpa working and everything. So my mom did help definitely raise her younger siblings. I read her obit and one of the things it said was that she was really into nonprofits and that sort of thing. What kind of stuff did she do? So she worked with the Sycamore Health in Urbana, Champaign County area. Then the Caring Kitchen has always been really near and dear to her heart. It's also in Urbana. It's the soup kitchen there. So she's always done a lot both financially to support them but then also a lot to support them with meals that she would bring. Growing up I remember every holiday season we would all make Christmas cookies and a lot of other different desserts and just something festive and we would always bring it to our local fire department and then my little sister played volleyball eventually she she did like a virtual academy through one of the local schools so that she could play volleyball. My mom actually organized a volleyball tournament called Pass That pink that was all to donations for breast cancer awareness and so she raised a lot of money for that. She did some other local not so much national fundraisers but just some more local fundraisers and then she was also on my personal team for my Leukemia and Lymphoma Society campaign as well. I bet she was really proud that you were taking part in that. She was yeah and we, it was such a cool bonding time for us. We talked every day regardless of the campaign but we talked for so much more. We would talk sometimes three and four times a day throughout that campaign. So it was something that was really special to me that there was another topic that brought us together where we talked so much more. So I have those memories with her. Why did you get involved in the campaign in the first place? I met Chris Peterson, the director of Leukemia and Lymphoma Society for the local chapter um, at a women in business networking group for Dayton Business Journal. We were all sharing our businesses. And then when she mentioned where she worked very quickly, she learned that my best friend last year, my best friend's mom passed away from blood cancer. When my grandma passed from pancreatic cancer, I watched how it really affected my mom to lose her mom. When I talked to my friend, I said, you know, after watching how much my mom was impacted by losing her mom, I would love to give you a really healthy grieving outlet for your mom, and that would be, you know, raising money to try to find a cure for what took your mom far too early in your life. And she said that she felt like that would be a really great grieving outlet. She accepted 
me being able to run a campaign in her mom's name, which is why my campaign is named Donna Strong. That was our hashtag for a while her mom was battling her cancer, and I did it in honor of my friend Brandy's mom, Donna. You brought up another point, too. I think, and I actually wrote a column based on this loosely. People read about these sorts of things. They say three people here died or ten people there died. It doesn't really get to the fact that these people were full people and they were people, yeah, not numbers. Yeah, Abbott, that's, um, mm-hmm. Has that been frustrating for you at all? Oh, it's been incredibly frustrating. So I'm not typically a very vocal person on social media. You know, I typically post pictures of my family and my friends and happy things. I did, throughout my mom's journey, post a couple of posts just to say, look, this is closer than we think. And I know to everybody's defense, me included and my mom included, none of us knew to what extent we needed to take some of these necessary precautions. But, you know, we still followed the rules, even if we didn't understand them at the time. Noticed a lot of other people explaining that they still are just doing these house parties where they're introducing new people into their home or their kids or whatever on a regular basis. And it's incredibly frustrating because I think it's one of those things, and we're all guilty of it, me included, that Mm -hmm. sometimes things aren't reality for you unless you're living them. It's tough for people sometimes to understand the effects of things. And, and yeah, I mean, obviously, right after my mom passed, the newspaper is, you know, putting out there, 56-year-old woman dies of COVID. And it's like, she's not a 56-year-old woman. She's my mom. You know what I mean? And it just, it feels so cold. You don't feel those things until you're living it. And I guess I've just tried to be a little bit of, of a factual but realistic voice of reason to people to say, hey, we're all in this together. We all are cooped up and there's a lot of people that are financially strained right now, members of my family included, but it's what we have to do to not infect others. And yeah, the whole process has been pretty pretty frustrating. But the good thing is, is that in some of the posts that I posted um, or even commented on other people's posts, I've had people reach out to me to say, you know what, I didn't realize how close it was. It's different when you're talking about Italy or you're talking about, you know, New York, where we're not at in either of those places. But, you know, when you're telling me you live here in Montgomery County and your mom in Champaign County contracted it, she's like, it feels real now. I'm going to start following the rules a little bit better. You impact one person with it, that's one more person than than you had before. And that's one of the reasons I think I really want to talk to you because it's really easy to kind of forget that, that this could happen to somebody you loved. Because yeah, we don't see it. Totally. We don't hear these stories about real people who are living in your community who you may know or could know. People could be at a grocery store next to your mom in the next line. These are actual real people. You're exactly right. You are. And, you know, we hear about bad things happening every day, you know, on the news or social media, you know, you you constantly get the news talking about bad things happening, but me included, you just kind of never think it's going to happen to you. Even if you take those necessary precautions and you have the most empathetic soul for the people that are going through hard times, we don't always think it's going to happen to us. For my mom to be the person that it happens to, it's it's been pretty surreal. And it's kind of crazy that, you know, my family has followed the rules so Still very strictly and it's just ironic that my uncle contracted it and my mom contracted it because I don't know anybody else outside of you know my family that has somebody that they know that that's been diagnosed with it which is kind of crazy none of my friends know people personally or have people in their family that have been diagnosed with it it's it's just something that is surely you know a trial that we're going through and I will tell you that I think that as a society, we all really 
could do better about being patient. Mm -hmm. And part of that is certainly abiding by the rules put in place by our governors, you know, and even our country, but also the amount of patience that it really takes from a person to sit at home for two and a half weeks while your mom is fighting for her life in a hospital and you can't be there. It's kind of like being out of state and not being able to get to your family, but you're not right there, you know, and you can't be there for them. It's it's an incredibly strength-building process to go through. Is there anything else you'd want to say that I didn't ask you about? I would just thank you for, you know, taking the time to want to talk about a local situation to just you know, again, kind of remind people that it is closer than you think and that while I know our economy is not where we want it to be and I know that there's a lot of hardships financially and mentally for a lot of people right now as we're battling through this unprecedented time that none of us, you know, would have expected or prepared for. But just to remind people that it it is a deadly virus. The, The statistics are very high. If somebody gets to the point of ICU or on a ventilator, the statistics are very high that very few recover from that position because of everything I described of that snowball effect. I just urge people to take the necessary precautions and to, we can do activities like going on walks and things of that nature that boost our adrenaline being outside and, you know, being in the fresh air and things of that nature, but just to take the precautions that are put out there because they are put out there for a reason. And I know I can say without any waiver of this that every single person, if it meant Hey, if I follow the rules and my mom lives, right. or if I fo- if I don't follow the rules and she's compromised, I know what everybody's answer would be. So we just have to think about it in that format and that mentality to make sure that we're not infecting those around us because it's it's a harsh reality. It really is. Hey, thanks a lot, Sarah. You're awesome. You stay safe and healthy as well. You too. I sincerely thank Sarah for sharing her painful story. I know it's going to help people. It already has. Sarah's campaign for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is still going on. I will drop a link in the show's description of how you can help if you can. The What Happened Was podcast is written, edited, and produced by me, Amelia Robinson, in our home office, with my little yellow ball of terror, Tigger, right by my side. The show's artwork is by my good friend, Troy Lani, of, of TL Creates of Columbus. And boy, y'all miss his face. Until next time, please stay safe and six feet away from each other. Bye-bye.